how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Ezekiel Part 1. Well, I'd be interested to ask you, would you put your hand up if Ezekiel is your favourite book in the Old Testament? You're an average crowd. Actually, whenever, whenever I'm asked what is your favourite book in the Bible, I always say the last one I've studied. It really is. I study a new one and then that becomes my favourite and I think that's the best of all. And then I study another and that becomes the best of all. Uh, it's the only book you'll ever read for a whole lifetime and still find you're discovering totally new things that you never saw before. Never get bored with the Bible. But Ezekiel, I would think, is probably the most neglected part of the Old Testament. And I'm going to spend more time on it than I have with the other books because it is so unfamiliar to people and so difficult. The first half of Ezekiel is almost unrelieved doom and gloom and quite depressing reading. That's the first 24 chapters. So many people get no further and give up and move to another book in the Bible. It's long. It's quite repetitive. We need to remember that it's 20 years preaching squeezed into one book so that people didn't have to read it all at once or listen to it all at once. It was spread over 20 years in three lots, three concentrated doses with long gaps in between. Much of it is not relevant to our situation. It's, it's another world, it's uh, another circumstance and we're just not familiar with it. There is also language that at times is crude and even offensive to modern ears. I won't give you examples. And above all, Ezekiel shows a side of God's character that we don't really like to think about and yet it's important for us to know God as he really is. But there is a severity here in God's character which reminds me of one statement Paul made in his letter to the Romans in the 11th chapter, Behold then the goodness and the severity of God. Now people love to hear about the goodness. They don't like to hear about the severity and it's interesting if you um, listen to typical radio or television religion, it is usually all about God's goodness and there is very, very little about his severity. So people get a one-sided view of God and if you only looked at Ezekiel you would also get a one-sided view but from the other side. Somebody sent me a postcard once after I'd preached on Ezekiel and the postcard was a picture of a silver mine in Latin America which they'd just been visiting and they said, you know, Ezekiel's a bit like a silver mine. There's silver in there but you really have to dig hard for it and look for it but when you find it, it's all worth it which is not a bad challenge when we open this book. Now the book of Ezekiel challenges us to ask two questions and to answer them. Why do you read your Bible? And secondly, how do you read it? And those two questions are related because the reason why you read your Bible will actually determine how you read it. Your method will come from your motive. 
And there are many different ways of reading the Bible. One is what I call the medicinal use of the Bible. Do you know what the medicinal use is? Ten verses a day keeps the devil away. You know the kind of thing? And you, you take your daily dose of medicine and you do your bit. It's very rare that if you only read the Bible in paragraphs that you get the message of the Bible. That's why I'm encouraging you to read the Bible a book at a time. I mean, which of you would read an Agatha Christie a paragraph at a time? I mean, by the time you got to the end of it, you'd have forgotten the beginning of it. The whole plot would be lost. And people really don't get the message of the Bible reading their little daily dose. You really need to read it a book at a time, as well as looking at smaller portions. On the whole, then, there are three approaches, say, to a book like Ezekiel. There is what I call the verse approach, when people are looking for a word for themselves. I'm tempted to call it the horoscope method of Bible reading. Do you know what I mean? You read it through until a verse fits your situation and you've got your horoscope for the day, you know, you've got something to live by. It's not really how God meant the Bible to be used, but that is how many people actually use it. And of course you have to go a long way through Ezekiel before you find a verse that uh, <laughs> leaps off the page. But uh, that kind of, we'll call it devotional so it's not too insulting, that kind of devotional Bible reading, trying to get a word for me for today, um, in a sense it's uh, useful but it's, it's not the right way to read the Bible. You might get a word of comfort here and there and a word of guidance here and there, but essentially you're self-centred. You're reading the Bible for yourself. Then there are those who read the Bible for the sake of other people, especially preachers and teachers. They're looking for something they can preach on. And essentially they look not for verses but for passages. And there are four such passages which leap out of... Uh, the book of Ezekiel into preachers' hands and they usually major on one of those four. The most popular is chapter 37, dem bones, dem bones, dem dry bones. The number of preachers who preached on those bones clickety-clacking coming together, uh, that's probably one of the most popular. But there are three others I noted down which I've heard frequently. Chapter 34 is a favourite chapter to preach at the induction of a new minister or pastor. I've been to so many inductions of a new pastor or minister coming to a church where Ezekiel 34 has been preached. It's about good shepherds and bad shepherds and good shepherds going to search for the lost sheep and bad shepherds feeding themselves and it's often used at um, services which are looking at pastors and the minister's job. And then there is chapter 47 but that is taken right out of context and used in an allegorical way. That's the chapter about the man finding a river and stepping into it up to his ankles, then up to his knees and then up to his waist and then finally swimming in it and oh, that's been used by so many preachers. How deeply are you into the Spirit, you know? Are you swimming in the Spirit yet or are you just paddling in the Spirit? And it's totally misused but it's a very popular allegorical form of preaching. There's one more that's chapter 18 which talks about the personal responsibility of each individual for his own sin. 
that instead of the fathers eating sour grapes and the children's teeth being set on edge and God punishing to the third and fourth generation, Ezekiel introduces this very important principle that on the day of judgment you are only responsible for you, that each man is accountable because each man is responsible. That's a favourite theme of preachers from Ezekiel. Having looked at those four chapters, that's about it. And preachers who read this book to try and get a sermon usually finish up with one of those four and leave the rest alone. I want to encourage people to read the whole of Ezekiel, not for their own sake or for the sake of getting a message for others, but for the sake of getting to know God. Because that ultimately is the main reason for reading your Bible, so that you are familiar with God, that you know what kind of a God He is and how He responds to us and how He feels about us and what He will do with us. It's to get to know God and when you read the Bible to get to know God, every part of the Bible speaks to you. If you just read it, get a message for yourself, then an odd verse here and an odd verse there will come alive for you. If you're reading it for others, a passage here and a passage there will come alive for you. If you read it to get to know God, every single part will be alive for you. Well, that's just an introduction. Um, I always recommend people when they're reading the Bible book by book for the first time to use the Living Bible. It's the easiest to read. We once read this through non-stop in our church, 84 hours it'll take you. We read it aloud. We had a, an aggregate of 2,000 people came. We sold half a tonne of Bibles. People were coming for half an hour and still there hours later. And it was because they'd never heard the flow of the story before. And they would say, well, one more book. And then at the end of that, maybe just one more. And they were addicted, they were hooked. But the first time we did that, we used the Living Bible and it reads very well and it is the most accurate translation of the feelings of the Bible. It's not the most accurate for the thoughts or words, but it is by far the most accurate translation for the feelings of the Bible. It's very important that you feel the Bible, that you feel God and that you understand God's feelings. So. The Bible is the Word of God but he didn't write it. Human beings wrote it for human beings and therefore we need to look not just for inspiration but for interest and in this series I'm trying to help you to see both. I find the human interest side of the Bible very interesting. <laughs> the inspiration comes on top of that so in these talks I'm giving you quite a lot of the human background these were real people in real situations with real feelings and when you get that side of the Bible, the divine side comes through all the more effectively. That's the point for studying text in context. The context is human. It's not just the verses in front and behind. It's the human situation in which God said that and so often we pick out the divine word out of its human context and that leads to boring preaching and teaching incidentally. It's the human side of Scripture that gets me. That's what uh, is often humorous too. I mean the funniest verse in the Bible is, 
and lo, in the morning, behold, it was Leah. <laughs> I mean, that's the first morning of Jacob's honeymoon. He wakes up, you know. <laughs> and he's got the ugly sister. Now, you wouldn't laugh if it happened to you. But if it happened to your best friend, I mean, it really is funny. You see, that's, that's the human situation. You've touched a human situation. You were laughing. It reached you, touched your feelings. But now let the divine word come through. Here's the guy who cheated everybody else, including his old dad. The Bible says, whatever a man sows, that will he reap. Now the last laughs on him. You see? And suddenly we got a serious word of the Lord. Now I think that's the way to approach the Bible. Get the human interest and then let the divine word come in on the human interest. And that's what makes the Bible alive for people. And you can't do that just taking a text or a passage. You do it by taking a book and looking at the man who wrote it and looking at who he wrote it for and what was going on and what was happening and how they felt about it. And then we get into it. So, we're now looking at a situation many years since the ten tribes of Israel were carried off into Assyria. A hundred years later, those ten tribes had ignored the prophets Amos and Hosea and they disappeared. But now we're looking at the two tribes in the south who were even worse. Would you believe it? that people who've seen ten tribes of their nation disappear for their sins and who then do the same thing. Can you believe it? There is something so stubborn and obstinate about human nature that we do not learn our lesson. Somebody has said history repeats itself. It has to because no one listens. And uh, the one thing we learn from history is that people don't learn from history. And they should have known that they would also disappear as the ten tribes in the north had done if they ignored the prophets, but they ignored prophet after prophet. Those two little tribes in the south, together called Judah, little Benjamin and big Judah, centered on Jerusalem, they ignored Isaiah. In fact, they got harder and harder when Isaiah preached. They wouldn't listen. They said, oh, we're fed up with that man. They ignored another one called Micah. We haven't had time to look at him. Someday we will. They ignored a man called Jeremiah. Jeremiah had a hard life. And they all said, oh, there's old Jeremiah again, and his name has become a byword for depressing people. Oh, he's a Jeremiah, we say. It's tragic. They just brushed him off. And they ignored one very powerful little man called Habakkuk. And they ignored him too. And so finally the worst happened. Now it wasn't unrelieved sin. There were one or two bright spots. There was a king called Josiah. He was only eight when he became the king. But an amazing discovery took place when he was king. He ordered a spring clean of the temple. It was getting very neglected, very dirty and unpainted. And he said, now we'll set aside some money and we'll renovate the temple. And when they did, they found in an old cupboard the five books of Moses. Isn't that amazing? See, they'd gotten to the kind of worship that's all music. The Bible got left in the cupboard. 
Now, that's happening today. And uh, so, yes, they had their worship and they had their music and dancing, but the law of Moses was in a dusty cupboard and somebody found it and gave it to the king and the king said, read that to me. And when the five books of Moses were read, Josiah couldn't believe it. He said, you realise we're heading for disaster? He said, we've got to clean the country up quickly. And uh, all sorts of terrible things have been happening, particularly in the Valley of Hinnom, just outside Jerusalem. They were sacrificing babies to Moloch. And it says, Josiah desecrated the Valley of Hinnom and it became known as Gehenna. Jesus used it forever afterwards as a picture of hell. But uh, there were these bright spots, but it didn't do the trick. And in fact, Josiah made a very big mistake. He decided to go and join in a battle at Megiddo at the crossroads of the world and he was killed by the Egyptian pharaoh and the good boy king was gone. Then we have a man called Jehoahaz. He only reigned three months and he was a bad king. And finally Pharaoh took him away to Ribla and chained him up and he finished up in chains in Egypt after only three months' reign. He was followed by Jehoiakim, Kim, I am, and he was another baddie, son of Josiah, should have known better, but he was a baddie. He was Pharaoh's choice. Actually, Jehoahaz had been the people's choice, but Jehoiakim was just a puppet king chosen by the Egyptians to replace the one they chained up at Ribla. Nebuchadnezzar invaded. You see what's happening? The east and the west power blocks are playing off each other and right in between is this little nation of Judah asking for trouble and especially now they were getting tied up in Egypt, the big power in the northeast was now Babylon and Babylon was on the march against Egypt. So little Judah was just getting trapped between these two world powers and that was all their own fault. God could have held those big powers off, but God wasn't doing so now. God was not with them. He wasn't Emmanuel anymore. So Nebuchadnezzar invaded and controlled the country for three years and then left again. And then they suffered a series of attacks from all kinds of quarters. Babylonians came again, Arameans came again, the Moabites came again, the Ammonites came again. The result was that by this time there was only a city left of the people of God. Judah had gone, Benjamin had gone. All that was left of the people of God was one city, Jerusalem. And, and now totally under the heel of others. Jehoiakim reigned for three months and then came a very bad siege from Babylon. should have just mentioned, yes, that the first deportation came at this time. I'll go back to that in a moment and make it a little more clear to you. But the Babylonians came and besieged Jerusalem. They had no food. It was a terrible two and a half year time of famine and disease in this tiny little city. And when finally the city was taken, all the treasures were removed. Do you remember King Hezekiah had shown the little king of Babylon, or at least the get well card man who came from Babylon, 
all the treasures and Isaiah had said you're going to lose everything you showed that man. Well, this is when it happened. As Isaiah had said, but furthermore, that all the top people were taken. That was a favourite trick to reduce a conquered enemy to helplessness. You remove all the top layer of society. And in the first deportation, they took 7,000 officers and soldiers of the army. They took all the craftsmen, about a thousand of them. They took a lot of artisans, some 10,000 of them and they left only the very poorest people. Now this was when Daniel was taken. We'll come back to that too. This was the first deportation and the result was we now had one city, Jerusalem, with only the very poorest people left and that was all God had. Almost looked as if the whole purpose of God was being brought to nothing. Finally, we get to Zedekiah, the very last puppet king allowed to be independent in Jerusalem. And Zedekiah had a little bit of an army, but again there was a siege, a dreadful siege, and this was the last of all. Zedekiah and his few soldiers decided to try and escape all the gates were besieged, so they dug a hole through the wall, pulled the stones out and then one by one crept through at night and then fled down the Kidron Valley towards the Dead Sea. They got as far as the plains of Jericho and then Nebuchadnezzar's army realised what had happened, discovered the hole in the wall, chased after them, caught up with them at Jericho and that's when they caught King Zedekiah and his sons and in front of his eyes they killed each of his sons so that he would see the royal line had come to an end. And then they put his eyes out. So the last thing he saw was his sons being killed and he was taken off. And then Nebuchadnezzar ordered Jerusalem to be totally destroyed. Every building burnt every building pulled down, the walls pulled down and Jerusalem finished. Now all through that time Ezekiel was living and that's just the historical background. He saw all that happen, not always because he was there but because he saw it in vision and it's the ultimate end of Jerusalem in his day that really is the back class. No wonder he's a rather depressing prophet to read in the first part of his book. After that he gets much more exciting and positive. Once Jerusalem had fallen and finished, his prophetic messages completely changed from warning of disaster to comfort and hope for the future, which is why most preachers preach from the second half of the book because it's much more optimistic. Well now let's look at Ezekiel's life against that kind of backcloth and if you want to just check out all that history, make a note, the second book of Kings and chapters 22 to 25 
give you all that background. This is why we need, in a sense, to read the prophets against the book of Kings and the history, and then you get the background, all right? Now, that's the history. I know it's a, history is a bit boring. It was one of my worst subjects at school. I'm interested in it now. I really am, because God's working out his purpose in history, but they never told me that in school. It was just battles and kings and queens that we had to learn. I was bored stiff. Well now, look at Ezekiel. He was a contemporary of Habakkuk's and Daniel's, and Daniel actually was one of his great heroes. You will find throughout Ezekiel that he talks of Daniel as one of the three greatest, most righteous men of history. Noah was another and Job was another. Those were the three great heroes of Ezekiel. He's always mentioning those three. Noah, Job and Daniel, three of the best men in, the, in their history. Now let's look at Ezekiel. The name Ezekiel means God strengthens, God strengthens. And that was to be very much needed. He is called 83 times in the book a new title, which incidentally Jesus adopted for himself years later, Son of Man. No other prophet is called that by God. But 83 times throughout this book, God says, Son of Man, Son of Man. And that title is only used elsewhere in the Bible of Jesus. That's rather interesting. We'll find out why as we go through the prophecy. So he's born somewhere around the year 622, 623, during the reign of that good king, the boy king, came to the throne at the age of eight. And contemporary with Jeremiah. Jeremiah and Josiah were actually the exact same age. They are brought up together and yet they never spoke to each other as far as we know. And Jeremiah seems to have ignored what we call Josiah's reform and I think the reason for that is that Jeremiah saw through it, it was a superficial reform. It was a reform from the top and reforms from the top don't last. You can't change people by act of parliament. And in fact, Jeremiah saw that the people hadn't really changed. Even though the king had forbidden all the pagan practices, people still wanted them. And that's why Jeremiah was pessimistic, even though he lived in a period when there was reform by parliament. There's a lesson for Christians to learn here. It's not just getting the right laws passed. Ultimately, it's what the people want to do that will be done. And you can make it illegal to trade on Sunday, but if the people want to trade on Sunday, they're going to. You see what I mean? There's got to be a change from top to bottom, or really the best reforms come from bottom to top and touch the law last, but the people change, so the law changes. It doesn't work the other way on. Anyway, he was a contemporary of Habakkuk and Daniel, so he was born. He was taken away from his home country, never to see it again, when he was what age? 25. And he was taken away in that first deportation, as was Daniel. And so these uh, rather upper-class people were <coughs> deported in that first deportation. Now he was born into a priestly family. Here we have a unique person who combines the functions of prophet and priest. Maybe that's why he's called Son of Men. 
You see, if you study Old Testament history, it divides into three sections. When they were led by prophets from Moses to Samuel, when they were led by kings from Saul to Zedekiah, and when they were led by priests from Zerubbabel to Annas and Caiaphas. There's a simplification of the history of Israel. They were led by prophets and it didn't work. They were led by kings and it didn't work. They were led by priests and it didn't work. What they actually needed was a man who was a prophet, a priest and a king rolled into one. That's what they got with Jesus, you see. But uh, Ezekiel is a bit of a foretaste of that in uniquely combining prophet and priest, except that he could never function as a priest because you cannot function as a priest in the temple until you are 30 years of age and he was deported at 25. hope you're interested in this. It, it just tells us something. That's why Jesus began his ministry at 30. That's when a priest begins, see? That's why Jesus had to wait as a carpenter until God's time. Well, I'm afraid he never did get to be a priest because he was taken away from the land, from the temple, and he never offered a single sacrifice. But he became a prophet instead. But he was of the very best priestly family, of a family of a priest called Zadok. Zadok. You know, whenever our queen or king is crowned in Westminster Abbey, they play the music Zadok the priest. It's still there. (laughs) And he was of the family of Zadok or Zadok and it's so very special. Now he was deported at 25 with all the cream of society and they were allowed freedom in their own settlements. They couldn't do any damage so they were allowed to build their own little towns and he settled by a canal. I think I've got a picture of the canal. Ignore the top picture, I'll come to that in a moment. They settled here by one of the canals that joined the Tigris and Euphrates. There was a whole irrigation and navigation system between those two great rivers in Mesopotamia. Meso, Middle, Potamus, River, Mesopotamia, Middle of the Rivers, between the two big rivers. And uh, this was the river Kibar and they were allowed to settle in a place called You have read it, haven't you? Because <laughs> it's a well-known name. They settled in a place called Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv. And the modern biggest city in Israel is named after the very little town where Ezekiel was by the brook Kibar. So he settled in Tel Aviv with his family. Well, that's a picture of it. Come back later to the top picture. At some stage he married. As a priest, it would have to be a virgin or the widow of a priest. Priests could not marry a normal widow or a divorcee. So at some stage he married, traded and did business. But at the age of 30, when he should have started his priesthood, he was called to be a prophet. And he had the most amazing vision of the Lord, which we'll look at in a moment. And he started a ministry. He saw the Lord, like Isaiah, he saw the Lord, but what he saw was quite different from what Isaiah saw. It was quite a weird vision. And for the next three years, we've covered his main ministry. From 30 to 33, 
He both did miracles and preached. This son of man, his major ministry was 30 to 33. Interesting. And then there's a long gap when he did nothing except that one day the Lord said to him, Ezekiel, I've got bad news for you and you mustn't weep. Your wife's going to die in the morning. Don't weep because at the very minute she dies, Jerusalem will fall. Now record this in your diary, Ezekiel. Record the very date when your wife dies. And it wasn't until some weeks later that a runner from Jerusalem came to Babylon, said Jerusalem fell, finished. And he said, when? They said, on such and such a date. It was on the very day he lost his wife. And in this way Ezekiel had to understand how God felt when Jerusalem fell. Amazing. Many years later, well three years later after his wife died, he started to prophesy again. All that time he was silent. In fact, God said, your, your tongue will stick to the roof of your mouth. You won't be able to talk until I release your mouth. He said, when I release your mouth and you can talk, you must prophesy. Isn't it amazing what these men went through? And for years he couldn't talk. Then God opened his mouth and he could talk again, but he had to prophesy. So for one year he prophesied and then his tongue stuck to his mouth again. And then a last prophecy. So he prophesied for three years, one year, and just for a few months. And all that's put in his book. Amazing man. When he was 50, his last prophecy came. And he died shortly afterwards and he's buried in a tomb in Babylon, what is now Iraq. And in fact, here's a rather poor picture of his tomb. It's at Kifi, K-I-F-I. If ever you are taken to Baghdad, <laughs> um, it's not far from there that you'll see Ezekiel's tomb at Kifi. And that's where he died. He never saw his land again, never saw Jerusalem again. And yet he painted a picture of a temple that is the most beautiful, wonderful temple which has never been built and which we're going to look at later. Well now that's the historical and personal background of Ezekiel and I think we'll stop there, this talk, and then in the next talk we'll look at the shape of the book and what the messages were that he communicated in those three very brief times of ministry. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.